The Black Room, your fortnightly podcast where our journalists and editors unpack the stories and issues from the latest edition of the Koori Mail newspaper. Deadly. Jingi Walla, welcome to episode nine of the Black Room News podcast. I'm Nick Payton, and in this episode, we ask the question, how are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people using their voice to protest or to get an important message across on a particular issue? I'll be speaking with the Koori Mail's journalist and photographer, Palawa woman, Gillian Mundy, and Tasmanian artist, Julie Goff, first up about an extraordinary truth-telling project both women are involved in, currently underway in Nipuluna in Hobart. I'll also be having a yarn with multi-award-winning author and artist, Gunnay woman Curly Saunders, about her new solo exhibition called Returning and how Curly is using her voice through poetry and art to talk about decolonisation. But before we talk about these important issues, I'd like to acknowledge the Widjibal Wyabal people of the Bundjalung Nation where this podcast is being recorded today. I also acknowledge and pay my respects to all ancestors and elders. Now, in the latest edition of the Kurimau newspaper, 764 is on sale now. And in this edition, we have an incredible story about activism and protest in the form of an art installation that is turning heads for all the right reasons. Gillian Mundy is with me now, who has written an article in our current edition on the Crowther Reinterpreted Project, which features her own work. And Julie Goff, whose art is also featured in the installation. Gillian and Julie, it's great to have you both here on the Black Room News podcast. Thanks for having me, Nick. Thanks, Nick. Great to be here. So, Gillian and Julie, this is a pretty amazing project to be involved in. And even before we saw statues being toppled in response to the recent Black Lives Matter movement, we know that societies have been tearing down statues for just as long as they've been putting them up, which really raises the big questions about, you know, truth-telling and what these statues actually provoke. So let's start with a little bit of background into the project that you both have been working on. The Crowther Reinterpreted Project is a series of four art installations commissioned by the City of Hobart to tell the layered story of the William Crowther statue in Hobart's Franklin Square. The installations aim to acknowledge, question and provoke discussion about the story of Crowther and his treatment of the body of Aboriginal leader William Lanny after his death in 1869. The project encourages thoughtful discussion about this complex part of Australia's shared history along with the future of the statue, raising big questions about the nature of truth. So Gillian, this is a massive project. It's very important that it's happened. I know that as part of the project, you've been there, you've been on the ground um, as part of your uh, part of the installation. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about the Crowther Reinterpreted Project? Well, look, I think our community has been very clear how offensive it is to have that statue in the city park towering over people with, you know, a very limited part of that man's story attached to it he was actually responsible for, you know, basically stealing the head of an Aboriginal man who at the time was purported to be, you know, the last Tasmanian Aboriginal man. We know that's not actually true. And, you know, like you hear that it's under the, it's like under this guise of scientific investigation, which is just not true. There's no evidence whatsoever that there was any scientific investigation done. Mm. Um, but it was more like a trophy. And he, 
I think Julie can probably tell you, Julie's a great historical researcher and she's been digging into the archives too and she's pointed some things out to me about how Crowther then got into Parliament to try and, you know, water down an act which after what he'd done was an anatomy act came in apparently, which stopped, um, you know, was aimed at stopping grave robbing because back in those days, I guess, well, they killed plenty of Aboriginal people. There was a lot of convict people here who had no families, so it was quite easy to snatch bodies with no one to say, don't do it. And then after what he'd done to King Billy, or William Lanny, King Billy is also known, there was apparently an outrage here in Tasmania, and they brought in the Anatomy Act only a couple of years later um, to stop grave, you know, as an attempt to stop grave robbing. With Crowther... He actually took William Lanny's skull before he was buried and it seemed he was in competition with other another colonialist. Someone else went and cut his hands and feet off. Um, there was outrage at the time because apparently he was a, you know, he was recorded as being a popular man who worked on the whaling boats and, yeah, there was a lot of people turned out for his funeral and, oh, even after he's buried with, you know, without his skull, without hands and feet, someone else dug his remains up again. Like, I think the next day, wasn't it, Julie? Yeah. The, the Royal Society then wanted, no one wanted to miss out, none of the officials who thought that they were acting in, in like you said, science, but then nothing scientific was happening to our ancestors' remains that were being exhumed or being taken from the, the dead house, the morgue. There was just like you say, this trophy hunting was going on. Um, and Morton Allport was the um, nemesis, the sort of um, competitive nemesis of Crowther. These two contemporary men were both trying to um, collect Aboriginal human remains and, and uh, Morton Allport was busy trying to send them to the UK to to become more more famous and more more scientific in his mind. Okay, and so they were almost collecting these, as you said, as as trophies, um, but also just as collections to show how many they'd they'd got each. Yeah, they, they wanted their names on collections. It's it's all over the world. So at the collections of Aboriginal ancestors' remains and cultural objects, stone tools. They've always got the names of the donor collector, not of any Aboriginal people. Generally, so it's um, until fairly recently that's how um, colonists uh, saw a way to become um, revered or respected in their mind for donating these to institutions around the world. Because we've even got mentioned in Gillian's article that uh, Crowther's grandson even went on to rob dozens of Aboriginal graves uh, down that way as well. Um, and as you said, you know, that was then referred to um, by the surname, so the Crowther Collection, um, which is just a disgusting way to think about any type of collection of anything um, in the, mm. the, the remains um, and skulls um, and body parts of Aboriginal people. Yeah, I mean, these people had suffered so much persecution in their life, and even after they they were deceased, the indignity and disrespect of digging their graves up and naming them the crowd mm. collection. I mean, it's no wonder that, you know, Aboriginal people 
know this name and we walk through that park and it's just a disgusting insult and it's like rubbing salt mm. into wounds at that statue stands, you know, up to, how many foot tall is it? Massively towering over us, kind of smirking. It just leaves Aboriginal people in no doubt about the society that we live amongst and their attitudes prevail. So that's you know, that's a really telling when such men are still revered 100 years, more than 130 years after they're dead. They're still holding quite a place in this central location next to the town hall. Yep. And you just can't believe after everything that this man did for him to become also the premier as well. It's it seems as though a lot of people uh, from your article, Gillian, aren't really aware of the atrocities that uh, this person has committed. So, look, we've spoken about William Crowther. He's got the statue um, in Franklin Square there in Hobart. Let's talk about William Lanny. So, who was William Lanny? Um, so. He was one of the family that were um, named as, as Lana or Lanny family. They surrendered in 1842. They were they were part captured and part surrendered by um, four people who were given a reward of fifty pounds up here, at near Arthur River in the northwest of Lutruia, Tasmania. Right. So that family had remained what was termed at large, like a, they managed to not be captured or or surrender for about a decade longer than anyone else um, on the island. So our ancestors were by that stage either trapped at Waibalena or living with um, communities and sealing men on Bass Strait Islands by that date. But that family was like parents and I think three sons and an older daughter. They had been a decade away trying to avoid colonists, you know, and so the Van Diemen's Land Company put out a reward of £50 and they were brought in and it was written that um, they had become lonely. So that's why they actually did surrender, in fact. They were lonely for being the last people known on the island, pretty much, um, apart from probably some children who were servants or whatever. But So then they made their way to Flinders Island. They were taken to Waibalena, that's uh, on Flinders Island as well, and uh, you know, exile camp of... A concentration meets detention camp. And so completely removed from country. Yeah, they were placed with lots of with other Aboriginal people around two hundred, and so within five years, the camp was disbanded, and people were then who survived down to to uh, Oyster Cove or Putalina now below Hobart, but only forty seven survived to to make that trip, and only William and his brother survived to that date. So five years after capture surrender and um but William was young he he um oh, when was he born he was born in the is it the late 1830s so he's about five when he still captured in mid 1830s so he was placed in and out of the orphan asylum in Hobart with other Aboriginal children that were actively taken from their families and not taken down to Oyster Cove straight away so he, he is then also finds a life at sea that Julian mentioned on whaling ships where it pretty much appeared he was very popular. He was seen as an excellent harpooner and um, whaling man and uh, he was known to the people of Hobart very well from coming and going. So um, he also went back and forth to, to live with uh, his 
you know, comrades who'd been displaced Aboriginal people down at Oyster Cove. So that's and they're in. So by he's only in his I think his mid thirties when he when he passed away in Hobart in eighteen sixty nine. And so an amazing story of William Lanny there. Let's jump to you, Gillian. As part of the project, we've got four artists. So you and Julie are two of those artists. The first installation of the series is called Truth Telling, and that was by Tasmanian and Aboriginal artist Alan Mansell. And Alan, uh, for his installation, temporarily transformed the statue into a memorial for William Lanny. So the artwork, which aims to rectify history rather than rewriting it, saw the statue with the head and hands covered in red and holding both the Aboriginal flag and a meat cleaver. So this sounds like a pretty amazing way to respond to William Crowther and the statue uh, by Alan Manzel. Gillian, what else can you tell us about Alan's artwork in particular? Well, I think it was adding the missing bits of history to the statue because what's on the statue currently, what's inscribed on there is, I can't think of it off the top of my head, but it's extremely vague about, you know, you, you think, oh, yeah, he was a premier, he was a good bloke. You know, he deserves some kind of glory. Then, you know, the shit things he done are not on there. They're, you know, people don't realise this. Some people do. They have since the artworks have been there. So I think Alan's work was a... Yeah, it was truth-telling. It was bright, it was loud, and it drew attention. It is just striking to see um, the red paint on uh, William Crowther's head and the red paint uh, on his hands as well, um, which to me uh, symbolises he's got blood on his hands um, and blood on his face. And, you know, there's the Aboriginal flag uh, standing behind him. And I can imagine there would have been quite a response by the general public after seeing um, a statue uh, be turned into the artwork, which um, which Alan turned it into. Yeah, and I'd be interested if you agree here, Julie, that you hmm. we've seen local media portray it as a really polarising thing to tell the truth, to campaign to get rid of that statue out of the main city, my central city park in Nipalona, Hobart. But it appears to me that media so often go out and, you know, try and find an alternative point of view rather than a balanced view. I mean, it's made me think about my journalistic practice. It's like, shit, have I ever done that? I hope not. And if I have, I sure as well never will now because what it looks yeah. like, doesn't it? And the internet yeah. trolls, it always brings them out. Yeah, you just... We just sometimes hear the loudest and think that's everybody, or I can, rather than, oh, that's, yeah, this is really a significant project for lots of reasons, including um, we're encountering a wider spread of people than, well, I am, than usual. And when you're in a park like that and the public are coming up to you while you're installing and deinstalling, you suddenly um, realise there's, yeah, many more allies than I thought, Aboriginal allies, or understanding that they don't want to be literally tied with that bad brush of Crowther, that they hopefully there's going to be more easier ways for people to log their responses. There's a petition on, you know, there's a response petition, but it is a bit arduous to sign up, log in and, and express your views. So I'm not sure how, how, how we move forward, the council moves forward next, but one thing, I've been working, visiting people, landholders, and 
realizing that, that, yeah, again, the same thing, that there's more people willing to kind of move move conversations forward and look backwards properly. So this idea that truth-telling is really imminent and, and realistic now that we have to actually show and, you know, describe, show and share the, the horrible parts of the past that's necessary. So this statue is like a case in point. Absolutely. Now we've got the the second installation as part of the project is called the Laney Pillar. And so, um, you know, this is this is more to do with William Laney, um, and that's by Tasmanian filmmaker Roger Scholes and Professor Greg Lehman. And this installation is was a mixed media piece, which comprised of both a statue in Franklin Square and a short film, The Whaler's Tale. Are you able to tell us a little bit more about that particular installation? Well, the pillar was, um, they had it set aside from the statue stood out nicer, it was at your eye view, and it had some really beautifully handmade, like, I guess you call them artefacts of sort of whaling days and tribal days. I think there was a harpoon, whale harpoon, there was a traditional spear crafted and attached to it. There was, oh, there was some newspaper headlines, and you could peer inside and see part of a short film, which was about William Lanning's life. I mean, so much of what you hear about him is if, is if you know, his life was his death. I mean, mm. the man had an amazing life. And that um, film is still available online on the City of Hobart um, website. Now, Julie, you are a member of the Briggs Gower Vincent family of Northwest Lutrawita in Tasmania. You're an artist who yourself interrogates colonial history on Aboriginal country, and you're also a curator of First Peoples Art and Culture at the Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery in Hobart. Now, Talking about art and activism, your work as part of the project is titled Breathing Space. And as the third installation, it involved the addition of a stained timber crate that covered the entire bronze figure of William Crowther standing up there. And, you know, it also uh, covered the original engraved stone plinth uh, text for the statue as well. The installation also included a QR code, which I thought was awesome. And that was located near the artwork, which, you know, people who were passing by the artwork could go and scan the QR code and download a new poster and new wording for the plinth. I just thought that was just a beautiful way to get people involved, to get people learning about the statue. But also I was so intrigued by what you'd done with just covering the statue in the box. So let's talk about your artwork in particular. So this was installation number three, breathing space. Let's talk about the concept. How did this come about? What what made you think that, you know, this was going to work? Well, I wanted to imagine, my first idea was to imagine the, the statue gone. So at first I was going to create a crate that almost had like mirrors or actually a um, adhesive that was like looking through the statue of what was on the other side. So yeah, like, right. in, invis- like an invisibility cloak. Like almost see-through. Yeah, I was like, yeah, let's just like imagine that. And, that you know, that this has been the statement I've said all along is like the sky doesn't fall down. You know, society, nothing will collapse. It's not going to be chaos. Removing a statue doesn't hurt, you know. Mm. But, um, but then, anyway, just kind of logistically and also... 
like what can be achieved as a on a bit of a um you know minimal budget so what we could all achieve as well for a very minimal amount I, I thought well I'll um just create the guy up because what I was really saying was let's just have a bit of I kept thinking the term you know breathing space having time to not have to face and walk you know near and kind of be peered down upon by that jetfall man so mm-hmm. uh the more then, so I paired it back to just being a crate, and then it was well, you know, what color crate? Uh, plain wood would be okay, but I went with um, going with a black stain, so that it would um, kind of blend in in a way and be also a bit ominous, a bit spooky and um, of the era of the of the plinth maybe. But also, um, I have to say that this wouldn't have happened without the like physically Stuart Horton made and made the entire crate so beautifully and Alex Haller and Stuart installed it. So I, I really, this is a kind of, apart from the torment of being involved in this uh, statue and thinking about it, the physicality of the crate was, I I didn't have to undertake that. So I'm really grateful to their, their part in the project in um, fabricating and installing. We, we did bog a scissor lift. It was hard work. Oh, are you kidding? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can bog them. It's kind of crazy. We we made a giant <laughs> mess in the park, but um, really, I just was so relieved when he was covered. I didn't understand that every time I've gone anywhere near that statue, I've always held my breath. It's like try not to breathe in the evil of the guy feeling, but also I actually avoid the park because it's just a problem for me to think about um, that park, and also it's just full with filled with introduced like plants that don't belong here and another two statues that don't belong, but nothing as dreadful of, uh, you know, a, a legacy as of, of um, Crowther's the, the worst of the three statues, that's for sure. So, yeah, the crate went on and, and then I, I was curious to see and hear what, you know, whether there would be some kind of outcry. I think because it was so minimal, it's not like I plastered the crate with what I felt about the man. I just let it become minimal. And uh, but then I, with the QR code, was able to upload I think seven or eight articles and um, archival records about what he did. If there's any, you know, if anyone has any doubt, they can download those. I just wanted to provide more information than is um, quickly for people. What was the feedback at the time? Did people wander past and look shocked to see you know the statue being covered up? Yeah, well, I spent a lot of time collecting vox pop. Um, with people that use that public space while the box was still there. And so many people appreciated that box. But so mm. many people wanted it left there. I wished it would have been left there. Mm. Yeah, I mean, at the absolute minimum way of dealing with this statue, at least do that. Yes. No, oh, well, it's been dismantled and it's down in the shed at Kingston. So, it, you know, it, it, it could go back on it, but I would only agree if it was um, what towards it being removed entirely, you know, like the, it's even if he's covered up, he's still there. There's always like some future government or leader might take off the crate. It's too risky, you know. That's right. Yeah, well, one young girl I asked on the Vox Pops, which are part of the film I made that's screening in the park now and online, is she turned around and said, is it a time capsule? I thought, wow. Oh, poignant. <laughs> she actually oh. had no idea what was behind Very interesting. Crate, yeah. Her comment, I'm like, yeah, that's pretty fitting. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so, Gillian, let's jump into that. As part of your involvement in the project, your new work, 
uh, is titled Something Missing, and it's the fourth and final in the series of installations as part of the project. And your installation involved a viewing enclosure near the statue, and that houses a film which shows a series of those Vox Pops that we spoke about and some short interviews with people who are using the area. So tell us a little bit more about your artwork in particular. Well, I'll regress just a fraction. It, during making it, I had never, I've had i never looked up the definition of Vox Pops. I know what they mean mm-hmm. because we've collected them for the Corey Mail. Remember, we used to have the New Year ones. And oh, there was one fellow I was, uh, that walked through the park and he said, oh, I only learnt what a Vox Pop was the other day. It's actually a Latin word, comes from a Latin word, which means the voice of the people. There you go. I didn't oh. know that when I set out to do it. So you were out there no. collecting the voices of the people. Yes, the hmm. people that use that public space because, I mean, our voices for so long have fallen on deaf ears. I mean, probably not as much lately. A long time mm. they've fallen on deaf ears. Our community's been, you know, we've said for a long time, get rid of it. We discuss how we might be able to get rid of it. Um, mm. Obviously, the city of Hobart, taking some, you know, I'm grateful for the initiative they've taken. And, you know, so they've got these online surveys. You know, they're getting conversation going. I thought, who better to ask than the people that use the area? And it got me started thinking about internal bias. Hmm. An example I give is I'm scared of spiders, like really hmm. badly scared. And the first thing I do if I want a spider quickly euthanize or relocated a real long way away from me is turn to the nearest man and suggest they do it. And I started thinking about that. That's internal sexism. Hmm. You know, some men are scared hmm. of spiders. And then I started thinking about internalized racism, that internal bias. You don't really, I'm not calling anyone a racist. That you don't really realise that you, you know, is that why we're not being listened to? So I feel like I'm maybe handing it to the powers that be on a silver platter. Well, here's the voice of the people. I hadn't yeah. set up any interviews. I told them there's no right or wrong answer. I'm a light skinned person. They, most people probably didn't know I was Aboriginal. Yeah. Um, I didn't say it's about that problematic stature. I said, you're happy to be recorded on film you know, answering a few questions about the park. Mm. Yeah, and I said, look, there's no right or wrong answer. And I was really, I guess I gave me hope that nearly everyone, well over 90% of people want that statue gone. Either they haven't noticed it there, now they Mm. know it's there, or they've learnt through your project, Julie and Alan's and Greg and Rogers. They've learnt that, you know, it's full of history. And mm-hmm. once they know it, they don't want it there. But there's a few people that, you know, are quite strong on, you know, a couple of strong voices. This is out of around 100 people that, mm-hmm. you know, think it should stay back there. But unequivocally, those people and all the others, everyone wants the truth. Yep. Yeah. So, yep. and Julie, your opinion, should the the statue of William Crowther stay or should it go? No, there's no question. It has to go. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not sure exploded into a million pieces or melted down to something else or, or thrown off a ship. But, yeah, but def- definitely has to leave the, the public domain. Gillian and Julie, thank you so much for sharing your time with me here on the Black Room News Podcast. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Nick. Talk soon. Willika. 
always was, always will be Aboriginal land. The Koori Mail. Knowledge, culture, country, connection. Stop black deaths in custody. Almost 30 years and over 474 deaths since the Royal Commission. No police officer or authority has been convicted for any black deaths in custody. Our organisation, Stop Black Deaths in Custody Australia, provide guidance, support and assistance. We are a not-for-profit organisation that campaigns and supports our First Nation families who are grieving the loss of their loved ones in their fight for justice. Please go to our website where you'll find our fundraising t-shirts along with the stories of those loved ones we have lost. Visit stopblackdeathsincustodyaustralia.com.au If anything in this podcast raises any issues for you, please contact the National Indigenous Critical Response Service on 1800 805 801 or Lifeline Australia on 13 11 14. Welcome back to the Black Room News Podcast. Now, I've just been yarning with Gillian Mundy and Julie Goff, two artists who are using their platform to raise important questions about the need for more truth-telling in Australia. And dialing into the studio now is Gunai woman, Curly Saunders, who has been working on a new visual poetry project called Returning. Curly is an award-winning author, an artist and consultant. And last year, Curly was named as the 2020 New South Wales Aboriginal Woman of the Year. Curly's artwork spans a range of mediums, including painting, printmaking, fibre, photography, film, traditional and digital art. Her work has been commissioned for the Wollongong Regional Art Gallery and Shoalhaven Art Gallery, Google, the University of Wollongong, Red Room Poetry and the New South Wales Department of Education. Curly Saunders, thanks for joining me on the Koori Mail's Black Room News Podcast. Oh, hey, Nick. It's so lovely to be yarning with you, brother. I'm, um, I'm down here on Darawal country today. Beautiful. beautiful well, yep, yeah, yeah. we're up here on Widgeable Wyable Country uh, in Lismore. And Curly, look, before we get started on what is your first solo exhibition, which is opening next weekend, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your mob, and where you're from? Yeah, well, um, didgeridoo-guranini. I'm, I was born on Gunungaira country and my family are Gunai people. My mum was raised around Yuan country, so lots of South Coast ties on my matrilineal line and on my grandfather's side where Birupai Way moved on to the mission at La Perouse. So, yeah, lots of coast and those mountains are what raised me. And some beautiful countries there, Curly, as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, a special place to grow up. And I feel really grateful that all of those lands have fed into my work and sustained me and strengthened me while I've created this body of art and poetry. We're talking about Returning, which is your first solo exhibition. Now, this exhibition is underpinned by a series of 30 poems, exploring some pretty big themes here. So we've got themes of decolonization, truth-telling, justice, intersectionality. We've got Indigenous ways of thinking. We've got the divorcing of white supremacy culture, liberation and black joy. So, Curly, these are huge themes to, one, not only be writing poetry about, but also with this particular exhibition having accompanying artworks. Can you talk to me a bit more about some of these themes and why are they important to you? Thank you. Um, Yeah, I mean, so many different ideas wrapped up in this one, I guess. I was 
um, visiting, work, well, working over at Marigong Theatre, and Genevieve Greaves popped by to deliver some of her groundbreaking work around decolonisation. And um, Jen, of course, is a really powerful artist in her own right and specialises in that realm. And she got me reading deeply and beginning to unpack and understand identity and the identities we've prescribed and been prescribed as Aboriginal and First Nations people in Australia. And I guess I started there. I started with the reading and the yarns, and then I started exploring how the systems that continue those identities for us and um, that have oppressed us and our, our grandparents, our family for, you know, the, the whole time during colonisation and what it's like to exist in this post-settler colonial world really filtered into my poetry. And so I created a series of poems that I then interpreted as artworks and they span fibre and digital film. Um, my key piece and my, I guess my favourite piece that I've loved creating is a possum skin cloak that I worked on with Annie Loretta Parsley um, down the coast. So, yeah, following that Hattie Gaddy line through our family and sitting and yarning on you and country was really special. Um, but I think these themes, these ideas that have been explored across this body of work, this poetry and visual poetry, I guess, so poems that are also art, has been all around understanding myself and removing myself or my identity from the identity that's been prescribed to me, which is something that I think so many of us are doing every day as mob out in the world. And, um, yeah, I'm really excited to have created this learning from so many mob too, people like Kylie Caldwell and David Cragg, um, people like Annie Loretta and Annie Shaz Robinson as well, um, Steph Bopark too, who's an incredible um, artist who works with plant dyes. Curly, we, we have some listeners who may not actually understand what decolonisation means. So in terms of your poetry and art, can you give us a bit of an example of the ways in which you are trying to decolonise your own work? Yeah, I guess so. Decolonization is the removal of colonization from the self. Um, and Tuck and Ree do a lot of um, writing around this. And Pokola Nui has a body of work as well, who I encourage you to go and, and read and research. Um, but Tuck and Ree speak about decolonization as not being a metaphor. And they talk about it being about returning land um, and returning, you know, culture and the rights to practice and honor culture um, and to be who we truly are despite colonisation. And so I guess that's that's what the work has been for me. It's been returning to cultural practices. So a lot of fibre making, you know, creating an artefact like a possum skin cloak, um, working on country with my elders and custodians and also with my family and providing paid employment pathways for other Aboriginal people working within those spaces so that we can continue to, yeah, re repopulate what our idea of, of our identities is, um, to live out that in its fullest method as we move across country and as we are in, in our own, in our own bodies and our own selves. I like what you said there about Aboriginal people being remunerated for either their knowledge or their expertise, because so many times we see Aboriginal people engaged in certain cultural activities where they're expected to perform those, uh, cultural, um, things or a welcome to country and acknowledgement of country for free. And you think, no, this is a, this is a paid gig, you know, you're going to have to remunerate for this type of wisdom or, you know, having an auntie or an uncle, um, performing a smoking ceremony. It's engaging Aboriginal people and making sure that they're paid for their services. 
Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, this is one historical thing. There's a poem in the collection that speaks about slavery and about stolen wages, which I think most Aboriginal people in their family know about. Um, and it's definitely true in my family too. And um, yeah, it's so important that when we're sharing cultural knowledge that we're remunerated for our time. And um, this exhibition, this body of work has been supported by the Australia Council for the Arts. And I feel really grateful to have been able to yeah, dedicate time and to be able to pay on my community um, as I've created this work and as I've learned from them. Do you see your exhibition returning as a way of truth-telling? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, there's there's some big themes in there. My mum was raised um, as a state ward after being removed from her parents um, as a kid. And, you know, I, it talks to that history. It talks to our parents, our grandparents raised on missions, um, to living on, on stolen land, you know, and the reality that, that we are sovereign people. This is sovereign land and sovereignty has never been ceded and how important it is for us to be sovereign people and and for that treaty to come about for that acknowledgement of that land so yeah there's a lot of um a lot of truth telling and I had to get comfortable with being with speaking those things out loud and expressing them in art and um it's been interesting navigating that realm where poetry um speaks so explicitly to a thing I think art can talk about it in a different way visually and bridging those worlds has been such a joy-filled place to operate in and it's needed. We need we need this truth to be told. We need people to be questioning the country they're standing on. Where am I? Whose country is this? You know, who does this actually belong to? Absolutely. There's a um a major piece in the work is as you cross over the precipice into the gallery, um, there's a sticker that says, "Mate, you're standing on stolen land," and it comes from a poem within the collection. And That's great. yeah, it's my hope that people will be shocked and reminded and and awed and hopefully drawn into the beauty of country as well in the hopes that they make those relationships with land, that they understand they are on stolen land, that, um, yeah, that work needs to be done for their, for this treaty to happen, for us to acknowledge where we are and, and who the traditional owners and custodians are in that space. Curly, it's obvious you're very connected to your community um, and the Gundangara mob down there. Tell our listeners a little bit about what it was like to be able to write with guidance and mentorship from your own community and your own elders and custodians and artists and and academics as part of your project. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, like working with Annie Loretta uh, down on um, down on UN Country was spectacular, and I think we as young custodians maybe don't like we live busy lives, right? There's so much going on, but maybe we don't always take the time to go and sit with community on country and um it was dedicated time for that for me to go and sit with my mob to listen and to to create and just to learn really hang mm. out with art and gosh it was it was so transformative it was so powerful and something I'm I'm really glad I did and um the cloak is not yet finished because you know traditionally we'd have been given a cloak when when we were very young and then it would have grown with us new pieces added each time we get older you know and um, the, the inside of the cloak would hold the story of that person. Mm. And so I haven't yet painted the inside of my cloak. And that's another part of this exhibition, which I think is decolonial. You know, I've tried to break down these ideas of white supremacist thinking, which is around like perfection, things being perfect. I'm like, no, I'm going to have an unfinished work in this exhibition. That's beautiful. A work in pro- I'm going to leave something. I'm not going to rush my journey for the sake of a 
a deadline that's been made up. I'm going to make sure that this one take, takes the time that it needs. Um, so yeah, that's been that's been a beautiful highlight in this process. And equally, Ani Cheryl and Robson. Oh, Ani Shaz is powerful too. I, I feel so grateful to learn from her and to get her feedback around right ways to do things, who to yarn with, um, what it means to include stories that are true. But um, yeah, the work is also being edited by. Uh, so after the exhibition, a poetry collection is coming out, and um, Grace Lucas Pennington has been editing that collection. And oh, Grace is such a powerhouse working with um, the State Library of Queensland and the Black and White Project. Um, and then, yeah, Magobala are going to be publishing that collection next year. So nice to have um, mob publishing, sharing, teaching, learning, um, and deeply ingrained in this whole project, um, even down to the actors within a film that we've created alongside Tad Soudin. Um, and, yeah, that one's supported by Oranges and Sardines Foundation and the Illawarra Women's Health Centre. They've, um, yeah, it's been so nice to include community through every layer of this. And my tiny little bubbies having them on screen, they were proud as punch. Curly, is there a particular message that you're trying to convey through this exhibition? I think just that our identities have been prescribed to us for such a long time, you know, and um, Aboriginal people, we are strong, we are sovereign, we are deeply connected, and that our and that, that kin connection, that connection to country and culture um, is will withstand all time and is so powerful. And I would love for other people to contemplate their own decolonisation. I would love for orgs and, um, you know, other people who contribute to that system of oppression to rethink that and to, you know, instead shift that towards helping the self-determination of Aboriginal communities and um, allowing Blackfellas to be who we are. We're, we're pretty magical. And so, Curly, for anyone who can't make the exhibition down in the southern highlands of New South Wales, which opens next weekend, uh, is that what the Magabala book is? Yeah, well, I mean, yes, and so it's a poetry collection that also features the artworks that respond to each of those poems. Um, so I guess a separate project, but one that feeds on from that in that it features the artworks and the poetry that underpins them. Um, but there will also be, you can jump on the SHAC website, so SHAC, the Southern Highlands Artisan Collective. Uh, they're on Gunungara Country on Hoddle Street there, and their website will also feature artworks. So if you want to buy them, jump in. There's some limited edition prints. Um, I've tried to make sure that there's mob price in there too. You know, I want to be accessible. I don't think um, art and fine art should be exclusive. It's been like that for too long for our community. So, yeah. I would love to have you there if you can be there. Please pop by. It's open from the 26th of November all the way through until the 23rd of December. Um, and the works will be available online and in person during that time. And I'd just love to meet you. So please pop in. Curly Saunders, thank you so much for coming on to the Black Room News podcast. We will speak to you next time. Thanks, Nick. Yan soon. Google Bear, thanks again for listening to the Black Room News podcast. I'm Nick Payton. And the latest edition of the Koori Mao newspaper is on sale now. You can find a list of news agents and how to set up a digital subscription at koorimao.com. Catch you next time. Make sure you hit subscribe on your screen to stay up to date with the latest Black Room podcast. You can find links to our socials and other Kurimao podcasts in the show description.